Hi, Pastor John here. Welcome to our broadcast. Today, we're going to ask the question, does God want us to be perfect? We'll find the answer in the story of Nadab and Abihu from Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. It may surprise you. Let's join the service and see what our passage has to teach us here today in the 21st century. I'd like you to turn to Leviticus chapter 10. I hope you're here for the long run because we've got a big passage we're going to cover today, verses 1 through 5. The, uh, thank you, Diane. <laughs> There's a verse, while you're finding that, it's right near the front of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, you'll find it. But there's a verse in Matthew that has caused a, a, a lot of anguish for a lot of people over a whole lot of years, mostly because it's taken out of context. And when I talk about taking it out of context, it's not just taken out of its immediate context, but taken out of the larger context of the full counsel of the Word of God. Uh, but still, it seems very clear to some. Matthew 5, 48 says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect so that's immediately we have to ask ourselves the question of the day does god want us to be perfect does god want us to be perfect we're going to find out in the story of two young sons I'm going to give you the official way their name should be said, and then I'll tell you what we call them. So it's Nadab and Abihu. Uh, we're going to call them Nadab and Abihu because that's what we're familiar with. I learned a lesson about pronunciation a long time ago. Don't try it because it gets too confusing, mostly for me. So, so we meet Nadab and his brother Abihu early on in Exodus chapter 6. They're born to Aaron and uh, Elisheba, uh, while they were Hebrews, still in Egypt, Aaron was Moses' older brother, charged with speaking to Pharaoh with and for Moses about setting God's people free and letting him leave Egypt. And, and eventually, there's a lot of complications there, like plagues and that sort of thing. But eventually, it works, and Pharaoh lets him go. Uh, the people make the exodus out of Egypt. Uh, they go to Sinai where, where God gives them the law, sets a mountain on fire, and uh, along with the law come directions on establishing the priesthood and building a tabernacle. And this is going to be a place for God to manifest his presence among his people. Um, the priests are going to serve in the tabernacle. Uh, Aaron and his sons... They're going to be the first priest. Aaron's going to be the first chief priest. And by that time, Aaron has four boys. He's got Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar. And God has given them these detailed plans for the tabernacle. They're incredibly detailed. And, and he gives Moses the instructions on how the priests are supposed to be clothed. This is really elaborate. And how they should be consecrated. Now, by consecrated, we're talking about being set apart being designated for God's work, for his holy work, and how they should carry out their duties. So they just take some time, and, you know, it's what we call the law. So all these plans and all these instructions are minutely detailed, and they're to be followed precisely. And that, so we need to understand that, and this is important, to, that Aaron and his sons, 
They hear it all. They experience it all firsthand. They know, because they're close to Moses, they know that these instructions come directly from God. They're right there. And, and, and it's not just instructions on how to build and how, how to put these things together. They're detailed guidelines on how the tabernacle is supposed to work, how the sacrifices are made, when the observances, the festivals and the feasts and everything are supposed to occur, and, and a lot more. And God's making sure, that, now we need to be careful with this, and this is something we need to understand about in our relationship with God. We, God is making sure that his people are going to worship him in the manner that he dictates. He's not saying, I want you to worship me, go up and make up a church service, and whatever you come up with is fine. He's saying, here's how you will worship me. Now, part of this is because one of God's attributes, his primary attribute, which characterizes everything about God, is that he's holy. So he's going to tell his people how to worship him, and he's going to spell it out very clearly. And, and so at some point, all the work is done, and it's time to have the first service in the, in the tabernacle. Aaron and his sons are consecrated. They, they make some sacrifices. Uh, if you take a look in Leviticus chapter 1 later this afternoon, uh, they provide the guidelines for making those sacrifices. The animal is brought into the tent of the meeting. It's killed. Aaron and his sons throw the blood against the sides of the altar and on the altar and all over the place. The offering is then cut into pieces. Wood is placed around and underneath the altar and lit, and the offering is placed on the burning wood. That, that's brutal. I mean, we look at that. Do you understand what just happened there? They just slaughtered an animal in front of everybody. Blood's all over the place. Uh, and, and if you think that's brutal, take a look at the sacrifices they make before they open the temple. Thousands of bulls, rams. It's a bloody process. It is messy. But you know what? It's a graphic description of the price that needs to be paid for sin. Because that's what the sacrifices are about. Sacrifices so that God's people can atone for their sins. Just a picture of what's to come. So when all this, all this is done for the first time, the altar's set up, the wood's placed, fire comes down out of the sky. Fire from the Lord comes down, consumes the offering. And, then, and demonstrating to uh, the people there, it's just the chief priest and, and, and his sons and maybe Moses is there, but demonstrating that, okay, so far they've got this right. God is pleased. The sacrifice was acceptable. Everything had been done according to God's word. Now, now the entire nation gathers in and around the tabernacle. All eyes are on Aaron, the chief priest. And the very first general service in the tabernacle is about to take place. And that brings us to our passage today. And we're going to see two major lessons today we're going to learn from this short passage. One is we're going to see the fire. Verse 1. And then we're going to see the fury in verses 2 through 5. So let's take a look at this first lesson, the fire. Leviticus 10.1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. This was a flat piece of metal with some chains 
uh, and it was designed to carry burning wood. Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which had not been commanded them. Keep in mind, this is the first service, the first day of services in the new tabernacle. And keep in mind also, the Nadab and Abihu, they're not just Aaron's sons. They're the priests with, with very precisely laid out duties. The, the instruction for burning incense on the altar given to us in Exodus chapter 30, another place you can look later on this afternoon. And it warns against what they call unauthorized fire. Burning incense in the manner and by the recipe that God had prescribed. Now, most folks think this, that the two brothers made their own incense. But that's not what the scriptures say. I, have you ever read the recipe for the incense? I, if you haven't, go, go take a look at it. Because I look at it and go, I can make that. I wonder what it smells like. <laughs> and God says very clearly, don't, don't use this for your own purposes. Okay? But a lot of people think that's what they did. But the scripture says the brothers used unauthorized fire. Now, the Hebrew word for unauthorized can be translated as strange, and that's the way it looks in the NIV. I like it. But its connotation is, is even a little bit deeper than that. It, it, the connotation is a lo loathsome thing. It's something to be hated, something detestable. And in the case of the tabernacle and the services that have been described in the tabernacle, it means something unholy has been introduced into an area that's been cleansed and consecrated as holy. I mean, everything in there has been prepared, including the priests. They've been washed, they've been cleansed, the clothes have been put on a certain way, all the instructions have been followed. So a lot of people think it's the incense, but it's the fire that they brought. And it's not holy. Well, that doesn't make sense. How can a fire be unholy? What's unholy about a fire? Well, I'm going to tell you something. We don't know. We don't know. A lot of trees have died trying to explain this. Scholars, theologians, pastors, priests, and popes have not been able to agree on the details of exactly what happened here. And I don't know either. But I'll tell you this. Most people like to demonize the sons. They, they like to make them into something evil in, in some manner as if it served them right for this punishment that they received for doing this wrong. I'm not convinced that's the case. If we take a look carefully at the text and the context and what we see that the tabernacle was set. All the preparations had been made. First service was about to begin. Aaron offered these sacrifices. And the Lord sends this fire down to consume the sacrifices. In other words, the wood at the altar was set on fire. Arranged the way God wanted it to be. And once that wood is lit and it burns, you guys at barbecue, what, what, what does it become? Charcoal. Eventually it becomes ash, becomes coals. Now, one reasonable explanation for what happened here, what happened to Nadab and Abihu, 
is that he bought strange fire. In other words, they didn't use the coal that the Lord provided, sitting right there. They brought coal from outside the tabernacle. And again, we go back to Exodus 30 and find out that that, that, that is specifically prohibited. Don't bring unholy stuff into the holy area. Yet, maybe that's what happened. Another possibility here. Leviticus 4 seems to indicate that the chief priest, and only the chief priest, is to set fire to the incense. Perhaps Aaron and Abihu lit that fire. It kind of looks that way, making it an unauthorized fire. Why, why, would they, why would they do any of those things? I mean, whatever they did, why would they do that? I, you know, I, I don't think they were lazy. I, I don't think they had bad intentions. I don't think they were evil sons. I don't think they were prideful. And I don't think they were rebellious. Nothing in there seems to indicate that. And think about that. Think about it. Because at this point, they're consecrated priests. They would have all the trappings, the incredibly detailed clothes, the holy utensils are all there, the respect of those around them, the community would look up to them, and they were about to inaugurate the very first service in the tabernacle. And more than that, they saw the glory of the Lord appear. They saw the fire come down. And even more than that, they were at Sinai. They witnessed the top of the mountain burning. They heard God's voice sounding like thunder coming from up there. They saw Moses' face when he came down off the mountain, shining with the glory of God. They were first-hand witnesses to the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna, the water from a rock. They saw all of these miracles, and they also saw the consequences of sin. They watched their father lead this orgiastic party at the bottom of the mountain while Moses was up on top. They watched him make a golden calf. They saw Moses' rage and the destruction of the first tablets when he came down. They saw all that. And now them, these two guys, and their father are the spiritual leaders of the great nation of Israel. Anointed to be God's messengers. Called to bring blessings to the world. A nation that God resides with. And they're about to have open house in his new home. And they're the hosts. Somewhere along the way, they decided to do things just a little different than how it should be done. Maybe, maybe it was better wood. Maybe the coals near the altar didn't look like they were going to light another fire. Maybe they think Aaron's too busy, he's got his hands full, there's a lot for him to do. And we need to help him out by by just doing this little thing for them. Whatever happens, they make the decision, watch this, to improve upon God's plan. They make the decision to help God out. And they make a mistake that's so easy to make. They believe that the guidelines don't apply to them. Now, even, even if they think the guidelines apply to them, then they had to think that the guidelines don't apply to this particular situation. We ever do that? 
Ever know the Word of God? Very clearly, He's told us something we should do or not do. And deep down in our hearts, we go, oh, well, God didn't plan on this situation. Or He didn't mean that for me. He loves me. I'm sure He'll understand if I, if I do things a little bit differently than what I've been told. It's just so hard sometimes to read the Word of God and live it. I'm sure he would understand. Could you see that maybe they were thinking along those lines? A lot going on here. Whole nation's gathered. Aaron's really busy. Fire might go out. Let's do this. Let's do this. They came up with God's Plan version 2.0. We like that sort of stuff. Those, those, those of us that involve ourselves in tech stuff, we like the new stuff, the new ideas, the beta version. They're immersed in it. And look what happens. We see the second lesson, the fury. Verse 2. And the fire came out from before the Lord. Second time we see the fire coming from the Lord, right? Watch what it's doing this time. And consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Can you imagine? Forget about Nadab and Abihu for a second. The whole nation is there. This is a celebration. The tabernacle's done. It looks beautiful. These guys are all dressed up. They look magnificent. The Lord is going to occupy the tabernacle. The whole world is going to see that we're special. Can you imagine how the mood of the crowd must have changed? Two of their priests, right in front of them, burnt to a cinder. This is supposed to be a happy time. And now, now, in every respect, this has become a solemn assembly. And I got to believe everybody's just rooted right where they were. Don't move. Don't do anything. Don't say anything. We don't know what happened. It could happen to us. You think that there was a reverence for God in that particular moment? You think anybody was thinking that that service was about them? And how the nations were going to look at them and admire them and want to be like them? The mood changes. Bodies are standing in front of them. Then in verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. A word from God. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held, him, held his peace. Now, God speaks to Moses. He explains to him what just happened. Moses takes it to Aaron. A word from God. Everybody listen up. They were probably very quiet to begin with. And this, this simple phrase here lays out the two primary attributes that God shares in his relationship with his children. God uses a phrase, among those who are near me. Get deep into the language here. He's talking about those who love him. Those who are close to him. And those that he loves. And this is the primary characteristic 
of the relationship between God and his people. It's love. The first attribute of our relationship with God is he loves us. That should be worth an amen. Thank you. We need to remember this. Above all else, God loves his children. But there's a second attribute as well. And we need to be aware of it. And I got to tell you something. This is not a popular theme in today's culture. But it's not just God's love that we need to recognize. God tells Moses to tell Aaron that among his children, he will be sanctified. He will be holy. His holiness is the second element of the relationship between him and his children. Between these two elements, love and holiness, God is glorified. If you think about it, you can't have one without the other. God's glory is not going to be fully exhibited if if it's just holiness or it's just love. He's saying both of them have to come together. And so... God is glorified in us, and we need to also understand that God's holiness will not be compromised. There's no give and take here. He's pure. He's holy in every sense of the word. If it were compromised, God would no longer be holy. He'd no longer... Be God. See what God just did with Nadab and Abihu? He gave his children a lesson in holiness. I think it's important that we don't know exactly what happened. Because if we knew exactly what he was, well, I'll never do that. Look what happened to them. We need to be able to regard God's holiness as something that is clean and pure and so endemic to his character and nature that it has to be respected and revered at every point. So he teaches this lesson, and Aaron gets it. Aaron gets it. He held his peace. He had to be suffering incredible grief and pain watching this happen to his sons. Aaron shuts his mouth. Verse 4, watch this. Moses called Mishael and Elshaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, uh, come near. You can see them going, come near. Carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. Would you want to be part of that parade? Make sure you're carrying it right. Let's start on our right foot, whatever. But they're the ones that have to deal with it. And what we should see in God's fire is God is not to be trifled with. He's not to be taken casually. He's not our buddy. We're not going to run and jump in his lap. He's holy. He's pure. He loves us. And the fact that we love him is because he loved us first. Amen? So he loves us, but he's holy. We need to recognize the fact that we can't just... JC is not our buddy. We don't call him by his initials. We don't sit down and have coffee with him. The people in the Bible go down on their face when they encounter him. 
They don't know what to do. And they all shout the same thing, wretched man am I, I'm lost. When they encounter the purity of of God, they don't know how to react to it. It's so holy, it goes beyond their comprehension. His love is not our license to do things our way. It can unleash his fury, and that's a terrifying thing. So, so do we see these two lessons? We see this fire. God had given his plan for how his people are going to worship him. Whatever Nadab and Abihu did, they didn't follow it. We're not sure, but whatever it was, it was different from what they were told. I'm convinced they were trying to do something good. I'm convinced they were good kids. But it was in direct violation of what they had been instructed to do. And then we see this fury. We, see that we get a glimpse, just a peek, really, at the consequences of violating God's word. Praise God. Listen to me. Praise God. Those consequences don't apply to you and me if Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior because he did what with God's wrath? He did what with God's fury? He absorbed it. He took it on for us. The consequences of Nadab and Abihu, they didn't have the advantage we have. All of us who have confessed our sins and called Jesus Christ Lord, here's what, here's what scriptures say about us. Romans 8.1, there is thou therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Sometimes we like to condemn ourselves. Sometimes we like to think that we messed up so bad God can't possibly love us. But it doesn't apply to us. But but the lesson is still there and it should give some urgency to how we share the gospel with the people around us. A couple of practical lessons here. We, We need to understand the full counsel of Scripture. We can't just take it in bits and pieces. We can't take the parts we like and discard the parts we don't like. There is no, oh, I don't believe in this, or I don't believe in that. Even though it says there, I just don't believe in it. We don't get that option. The other thing is God God prescribes worship. You know, he didn't come down and say, sing these songs, have this in your liturgy, you know, we all have our own liturgies. Yeah. He didn't do all that, but he prescribes worship that is God-centered. He prescribes worship that is designed to bring him glory, not to satisfy us, not to make us feel completed, not to fill us with warm fuzzies and hair standing up on our arms and that sort of thing. Worship is not for us, brothers and sisters. It's for God. It's supposed to be God-centered, God-focused. And furthermore, we just learned not to bring worldly elements into our worship. It corrupts worship. It takes the focus off God, puts it on us. I tell you, as pastors, we hear this all the time. You're not going to get folks with that type of music. Lights are too bright, got to turn them down. Or why don't you talk about current events? 
Or maybe there's too much scripture. Or why don't you do plays or skits? People are getting bored with preaching. It's not supposed to be a monologue. It's supposed to be a dialogue. You have to spice things up. Now, all those things in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with, with, with a church that does skits or has low lights. But in and of themselves, they're not bad. But we need to understand what's behind those requests. What's hidden in those questions is, why aren't you pleasing me? Why aren't you meeting my needs? Worship is here to please God, not us. Okay, well, those are good practical lessons, but the reason we're in the Old Testament is we're, we're supposed to be learning about the character and nature of God. We're supposed to be learning about aspects of his plan of redemption for his children. And the question of the day, does God want us to be perfect? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I don't want it to be yes. But he does. God demands our obedience. God demands our perfection. Because only in our perfection, will we ever be truly holy? Stick with me, don't turn me off. Because God knows in and of ourselves that we can't do that. He knows that it's impossible for any one of us to ever be perfect. Nadab and Abihu are prime examples of human imperfection that we all share. They most likely couldn't help themselves. Had a better idea and they moved on it. And neither can we. If we thought we could be perfect, just stick with me for a moment. Because if you think you're pretty good, if you thought you could be perfect, understand this. The first time you get mad at somebody, Jesus says you murdered them. And I'll tell you something. I can't help getting mad. I'd like to go, oh, don't get mad. But I don't know that I'm mad until I'm mad. <laughs> I can repent, but I'm already guilty. I can say, God, forgive me. But I've already been imperfect. What do we do with this? God knows this about us. God knows we can't be perfect. And because he knows we can't be perfect, he gave us his son. He gave us his son to be perfect for us. And Jesus took that perfection to the cross and perfected his gifts on the cross. I mean completed, not made him better. But he made him complete and full so that we could eventually be perfect, sanctified, made holy like God. See, this is the good news for the believers in this. God doesn't expect perfection out of us. We're off the hook. So every time we fall short of being perfect, we're not condemned. We're saved by a perfection, listen, that is not our own, a righteousness that is not our own. Philippians 3, Starting in verse 7, but what it, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul was perfected by a righteousness that did not belong to him. God doesn't demand that we be righteous or perfect. We're saved by the righteousness of Christ and by his perfection, not ours. But he does, he does want us to long for those things. He wants our hearts to ache for that holiness, for that perfection. That one day we will realize fully, but it's not today. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12, 14. Strive, strive for peace and with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, strive means to pursue, to long for, to desire with all of our hearts. We pursue holiness because that's where God is taking us. He'll get us there one day. Our destination is guaranteed. Not by how well we do at this, but by the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. We're saved by Jesus Christ and his perfection, not ours. God doesn't want your perfection, brothers and sisters. God wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your heart totally focused on him, consumed with him, our highest priority, our fondest desire. If you give him that, he'll bring you into perfection. Doesn't that make the sacrifice on the cross something special? Is this why Jesus said, whenever you do this, do us in remembrance of me? Because what he was about to do would save us all. I'm going to ask Brother Jimmy to come up and lead us in communion. It is an ancient tradition that you and I practice as brothers and sisters in Christ to remember our Lord and Savior and the sacrifice he made for us. And if you think about it for just a moment, the most precious commodity in the entire universe is the blood of Jesus of Nazareth. What can one drop of his precious blood do? It washes the souls of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions and tens of millions of human beings and brings them into the right relationship with the one true God. And that's what we're asked to memorialize. Our, our tradition here at WBF is once a month, we take a special moment to remember that awesome work that Jesus of Nazareth did for you and for me personally by name. Think of this. The king of kings intervened on your behalf by name, knowing you fully. While you were yet his enemy, he intervened on your behalf. Now, the king of the universe, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, has given you and I a special gift. And that is these moments now with him. A special moment with him to remember the work he has done by taking the elements of that last Seder meal and putting them into a new light 
of his glory and the work that he has done for us and is doing for us. So this morning, I'm going to ask the deacons if they would bring the elements of bread, that symbol of his body, first. Because remember, that evening that he was arrested, Jesus broke that bread and he said to his disciples and to you and I by extension, this is my body. I'm giving it up for you. So if you'll then hand out and we'll bless these elements. Mighty God, we do thank you for the blessing of your body and your sacrifice for us. Take these now and distribute them. Thank you. So we are going to take this bread and we are going to remember the physicality of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His scourging, his work of just even going out to Golgotha. Bearing his plinth on his shoulders. Thank you, brother. For in this bread we remember that Jesus, the God-man, loved us to the point of delivering himself to death. And don't let anyone lie to you, brothers and sisters. He died on that awful torture device. Take this remembrance of his body and eat. in those same moments with his disciples gathered about him and they not knowing the fullness of what he was about to do in those next 12 or 15 hours he said now this cup this wine we share this drink we share this is my blood and remember we don't use the verb spilled when we say Jesus' blood. It was no accident to this. He shed it for us. An intentional act of obedience to the Father. And mighty one, we ask you to bless this also, these symbols of drink, remembering your blood shed for us. Mighty one, thank you. For here in the juice, we remember the most precious commodity in the universe. Knowing that Jesus came into time and space through the portal of a virgin's womb, knowing that his end in this realm would be an awful, horrible, and torturous death. Brothers and sisters, a death that was so awful, we invented a word for it. We call it excruciating, excruciating, out of the cross. That he would bear that for us while we were his enemies, treated, we had, we had betrayed him. We were traitors to his kingdom and to his name and to his authority. So remembering the generosity and the commitment he made to us. We're going to take this cup in remembrance. Of the blood that he shed intentionally for us. 
on those awful moments on the cross. Take this and drink. Pray with me, will you? Mighty God, who are we that you would send your son into this place to save us from our self-imposed prison and our self-imposed sentence, that you would love us with a love that we cannot even define, let alone confine. We want you to be first and most in the life you've given us to live. And with this communion moment, we thank you for letting us be real men and women and possessing eternal life by your wonderful presence. And Lord Jesus, the gift you've given us, which is your blood in your body. We thank you. And all these things in your name praying. Amen. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.